And I invite you to open in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew 12. Since this has been a couple of weeks since we looked at the Gospel of Matthew together, I sort of want to reorient you just a little bit. We're here in the middle of a section that basically runs from chapter 11 to the end of chapter 13. And in this section of the Gospel, as Matthew has structured it, he's highlighting responses of people to Jesus' ministry. And of course... Praise God, some people in Jesus' day humbly received Him and believed on Him. But of course, many and most of the Jewish leadership rejected Him. And Matthew records in this section confrontations that Jesus has with the Jewish leadership and with the Pharisees in particular, And in the midst of this section, there are both confrontations and sober warnings. And so our text today, and probably for the next couple of weeks, are going to have a kind of sober tinge to them. And what we are doing as we work together through the Bible is just to let the Bible, that portion of the Bible, say whatever it has to say to each one of us. And so there are times when we need to be sobered by what the Lord has to say. And that's what He's chosen for us for the next couple of weeks. And so I hope that you'll prepare your heart and your mind and, uh, and really come to hear what the Lord has for us today. So our text goes from verses 22 to verse 37. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22. He records that a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And then he says, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the, whole, against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure, out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now last time, in verses 15 to 21, we got a little bit of a respite from Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and kind of the confrontation and the condemnation. And we got to take a break and look at Matthew's quotation of Isaiah and see the glories of God's great servant who was our hero. Amen? You remember that? But now we come back into this sort of record of these dark dealings, these difficult dealings of our Lord with unbelief. And the occasion that brings up this discussion is this exorcism of this demon and a healing of uh, a deaf mute. And I wanted to just stop and sort of take a little bit of a detour right here and give some thoughts about this because we live in a day that it is probably harder for people to read and accept that account just as a bare account on face value than it, it's harder today probably in our world of pure naturalism and crass materialism to believe a story like that than it was for people of other generations. And I want to challenge the thinking that is so common that says that, you know, we live today, Pastor, in an age of reason and an age of science. You know, we understand the Bible was written back in the days of superstition and People believed in demons and that sort of thing and spirit world and how those demons could cause disease, but we know better than that today. And I just want to say that I think that kind of thinking fails to reckon with a couple of facts. And all of this by way of sort of detour, I know, but I think it might be helpful. First the New Testament distinguishes between ordinary sickness and demon possession. The Bible does talk about sickness being healed and demons being cast out, and sometimes those go together, and sometimes they're distinguished in the record of the Gospels. In other words, the New Testament doesn't attribute all sickness or deformity to sin 
or, you know, directly to a sin or to demonic activity directly. Um, If sin and demons were just the default superstitious explanation to to, uh, explain something that was unknown, then we would expect that to be the explanation every time you come across um, sickness that people didn't understand back in Jesus' day. However, the Bible does distinguish. And at the same time, it recognizes the influence of the spiritual as well as the physical. This is the worldview of the Bible, and we must not be ashamed about it because it's true. There is a spiritual realm, and there, of course, is the physical realm, and these two are interwoven in uh, such a way that the Bible just frankly recognizes. The Bible recognizes then that sometimes spiritual causes were behind physical afflictions. And in fact, a growing number of physicians are beginning to rediscover, in fact, the influence of spirituality on patient recovery. In fact, in some cases, there is even a recognition that some severe and unusual cases are actually tied to demon possession or demon oppression. Princeton and Yale-educated psychiatrist Dr. Richard Gallagher helps uh, advise clergy who are involved in doing exorcisms, the casting out of demons. And he helps them by helping to differentiate between identifiable mental illness and unexplained phenomena that may be linked to demonic oppression. In an article in the Washington Post, he wrote, Unfortunately, not all clergy involved in this complex field are cautious. In some circles, he says, there's a tendency to become overly preoccupied with putative demonic explanations and to see the devil everywhere. Most of the people I evaluate, he says, in this role, um, suffer from more prosaic problems of a medical disorder. But I believe I've seen the real thing, that is, demonic oppression and, and possession that causes physical manifestations. He goes on and he says, I'm aware that I am aware of the way that many psychiatrists view this sort of work. That is, identifying, helping to identify um, demonic oppression. He says, I'm aware of the way many psychiatrists view this sort of work. The field is full of unpersuaded skeptics and occasionally doctrinaire materialists who are often oddly vitriolic in their opposition to all things spiritual. Yet, he says, I've been pleasantly surprised by the number of psychiatrists and other mental health practitioners nowadays who are open to entertaining such hypotheses. Many believe exactly what I do, though many are reluctant to speak out. I want to say, secondly, 
that modern scientific skepticism about even the possibility of demonic spirits affecting health betrays what I think is a shallow thinking about the philosophy of causality. Let me explain that just a little bit. You know, there is a kind of thinking that says, you know, we don't need superstition anymore to explain illness. Science tells us the cause of the illness. For example, somebody might say, well, we know that this man's blindness, this person's blindness, is caused not by demons, but we've examined him and we, we can tell you it's caused not by demons, but by diabetes. But I want you to think about the idea of causation a little bit more. What, in fact, causes the diabetes? Well, he might say, primarily genes. We know, for example, that if you have type 1 diabetes, then your children, uh, one in, there's a 1 in 17 chance that your, your child will be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And yet, it is a 1 in 17 chance, which means that there are clearly, what? Other factors involved. And, in fact, that's the case. So they'll say, well, yeah, there are other things, environmental factors like viruses can trigger this disease or diet or even, some people even say the weather. And, uh, in fact, they've done studies of twins, same genetics, growing up in basically the same environment, and one gets the disease and the other doesn't. In other words, Causation is not simple, it's complex. And then you have to ask the question, well, so if you say it's, it's genes and it's a genetic disorder that gives the propensity for the diabetes, which in turn causes the, the uh, blindness, well then where does the genetic disorder come from in the first place? And the answer to that is, well, mutations that occur during the DNA replication process. And I want to ask, then, what causes the mutation? And on and on you can go. When you begin to really unpack causation, you really begin to understand that it's a lot more complicated than you might think. In other words, there are proximate causes, there are contributing causes, there are common causes, there are distant and prior causes. Philosophers talk about a material cause, a formal cause, an efficient cause, and an ultimate cause. In other words, what I'm saying is this. It's, it's really simplistic, I think, to say, well, science can isolate the cause of that disease. It's fr frankly reductionistic to exclude on the face of it any possibility of spiritual causation as a factor in bodily malfunction or illness. So here's a man whose physical illness is linked to demonic oppression. And Jesus comes to him and Jesus goes right to that um, uh, illness and to the apparently to the demonic possession as well and, and eliminates 
these from this man's life. And that miracle elicits two contrasting responses. Take a look at the Bible again and notice the way that people respond to this incredible wonder that Jesus has performed. On the one hand, the people are amazed and say, wow, maybe this is the son of David. Maybe this is the Messiah. And on the other hand, when the Pharisees hear people talking like that, they say, no, it's only by Beelzebul, which literally means the master of the house. It's by Beelzebul, the prince of the house of the demons, that this man casts out demons. You know, sometimes uh, the Pharisees took a different tack, and they tried to discredit the miracle itself. Remember the story of the man born blind? And Jesus healed him of his blindness, and they grilled his, the man, they grilled his parents. Was he really born blind? Can anyone else vouch for this? Who's known him since he was a child? They start investigating his background to try to say that the miracle was a sham. And there are other times when I think it became frankly undeniable that there is a power at work here. The power of God is on this man's life. So rather than um, attacking the actual veracity of the miracle, they try to attack the source. And they say that the miracle was done by the power of the devil. And of course, that's what they're doing here. And to that, Jesus makes two rejoinders. The first, you see, in verse 25, is that he says that their accusation is illogical. <laughs> he says, knowing their thoughts, he says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house or city divided against itself will uh, cannot stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? So you thought Abraham Lincoln said that, didn't you? Now you know better. The logic seems obvious, right? But I tell you this, you know, when we are dead set on continuing in our sin, we are capable of being blinded by the most absurd of self-justifications. I don't think it can't happen to you. When we are determined to sin, then we are able and capable of justifying ourselves even in the most absurd of fashions. Beware, brothers and sisters, of the hardness of heart because it will blind you even to clear thinking, which all goes back to what I've said on a number of occasions that our biggest problem the biggest problem with those who reject Christ, the biggest problem is not logical or intellectual. The biggest problem is moral. An unwillingness to submit to God. And when these people became hardened in that, it's like their accusations weren't even logical. And Jesus secondly says that their accusation is inconsistent. 
verse 27. Look at that. Notice what else he says. If, you're, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. In other words, there were other people doing this kind of thing, other Jewish exorcists casting out demons. We read about some in the New Testament even. The Pharisees assumed that those people were acting, you know, in the power of God. So why not now? Because Jesus is doing the same thing. And the answer, of course, is that their minds are already made up about Jesus. Their rejection of Him is settled. It's intentional. They didn't reject Him because of a lack of evidence. They are biased against Him. And His rejoinders manifest not only that their arguments are illogical, but that they're biased, that they're inconsistent. And they are biased, of course, because because these guys are dead set against Christ because of, of among, among other reasons, because Christ has humiliated them. <laughs> you read through the Gospels, right? How many times does Jesus confront these people and they walk away with their tails between their legs? He calls them out for their own selfish motives like He knows what's in their minds and in their hearts. While they are intent on putting on a show of godliness and righteousness, they are intent on justifying themselves before God, and Christ calls them out as sinners. In fact, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is only for the humble. The only way you can enter the kingdom of God is by being poor in spirit. Being humble, you humiliate yourself before Almighty God or God will humiliate you. That's the way Christ's kingdom works. You humble yourself or Christ will ultimately humble you. And, and I tell you, you know, read the Gospels with, with humble Broken people, Jesus could be very gentle, couldn't he? But with proud, self-righteous people, he could, he could sound quite harsh. And it is the same today, only humble people enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus repeats these humiliating confrontations with the Pharisees, and rather than breaking them and humbling them, it only hardens them against Him. And Jesus' rejoinder then brings Him to this conclusion. All right, Here's the sum of the whole matter now. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, If... It is, in fact, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then here's the conclusion. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They were seeing, these disciples, these, these Pharisees and the people who are watching, were seeing unprecedented power, the unprecedented power over the spirit world. They were seeing Jesus exercise 
this power of his own authority as one distinctly authoritative. Remember back in chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, it says that he taught them as one who had authority and not like just teachers and scribes and regular a regular rabbi. I mean, and this is the way he's doing these miracles. He's doing it with a display of inherent authority and the um, in the full power of God through the Holy Spirit. He's casting out every demon that he attempts to exercise and he is casting them out as if he had direct control over them. And he says, all of this should manifest to you that this is being done by the Spirit of God. And if that is the case, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is the manifestation of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, that's coming to displace the rule of the devil. And that is exactly what Christ is all about, bringing God's kingdom into this world, into this dark world that is ruled by the devil, as it were. And and according to the language of Colossians chapter 1, God is transferring people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his own dear son. Now, if if, if Satan is Beelzebul here, the Lord of the house, then Jesus is going to enter that strong man's house, he says, and plunder, do you see the text? He's going to plunder that strong man's goods. He's going to take Satan's slaves and he's going to bring them into his house and now they're going to be his servants. He's going to plunder the strong man's house. And if that's going to take place, then first he's going to have to bind the strong man. You can't spoil his house until you tie up the master of the house. And of course, the death blow to Satan's power happened at Jesus' crucifixion and especially at his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and enthronement at the right hand of God, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. But even now, even now in his earthly life before all of that, he's begun to bind the devil. Or in the parallel in Luke, Luke says that he takes away the strong man's armor. The Lord is taking away the devil's armor piece by piece as he casts out these demons one by one. And he's coming in to bring his kingdom, to set the captives free from their former oppression to a new kind of slavery that is liberty indeed. This is what Jesus says is happening. This is what all of these signs should tell you. This is the conclusion that you ought to draw. And if all of that is true, then there are implications. And Jesus presses two of them. The first is this. Listen that there is no neutral spiritual ground. Or the way Jesus says it in verse 30, take a look at 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are only two spiritual powers on earth, two kingdoms. 
the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of God's dear Son. And you have to be in one camp or the other. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're not in His camp, then you are by default in the enemies. There is no neutral ground. There is no third way. And this is so important to remember because I do know from experience and conversation with friends that there are people who say, you know what, I am not, I am not, I don't identify as a Christian, but I'm also not against Christianity. I'm, I try to be a good person. I think God will, you know, will look favorably upon that. This is, um, this is contrary to the teachings of Jesus himself. So let it be clear today whose side you're on. All right? Come out and say, I am for the Lord. My hope is in Him. Go public with your faith if you're truly on the Lord's side. Jesus says that's one implication. The second implication is perhaps the most sobering of all. And it's in verse 31. And I want you to take a look at the text again just to see it. All right? Chapter 12, verse 31 again. Jesus says, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but, or except, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come, that is now or in eternity. And so this morning I have the sobering responsibility of preaching this text to you and of warning against a sin that is, in the words of Jesus himself, unforgivable. So, what is that? And he says, well, maybe it's got to be something really, really bad. Is it adultery or murder? And I want to tell you today that, listen to me, even, even what we think of as the worst sins with the greatest implications, hurting other people and, and destroying um, the glory of God, even the greatest of sins will be forgiven if someone truly repents and believes in Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the case, then what is this? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is the unpardonable sin? I want to say it in two points. Number one, it is rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus. It's rejecting the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. This is exactly what these miracles were, right? They were the testimony of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus was. And it was an extraordinary testimony any one of us has to admit. Verse 28 makes it clear. It was by the Spirit of God that He cast out these demons. These people... We're taking that testimony of the Spirit right before their eyes and rejecting it. I want to say secondly, that this rejection of the Holy Spirit about Christ is knowledgeable, deliberate 
stated, and settled. You say that again. It is knowledgeable, deliberate, stated, and settled rejection of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let me take each one of those words for a minute. It is knowledgeable rejection. These Pharisees were not ignorant. They knew the Scriptures. I mean, they didn't know them in, the, in their fullness because they didn't recognize the Lord Jesus. They would not receive Him. But they knew what the Bible said. And they knew that the power of God was upon Him. But they were unwilling to submit to Him. Jesus had said in this text, whoever sins against the Son of Man, they may be forgiven. And of course, that's a reference to Himself, but it's a very unique kind of reference. It's a reference that has its roots in the Old Testament, right? In the book of Daniel. In other words, son of man, which in ordinary conversation might denote just a human or humanity. Now, of course, in Daniel's usage, it's elevated. Um, but the term son of man was the revelation of Jesus in mystery form, in in, in some measure of, 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 of obscurity. He says, whoever rejects a kind of shadowy revelation, that, that may be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes the direct testimony, the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. In other words, friends, this sin, the sin of... The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is not committed out of ignorance or misapprehension by someone who has very little knowledge of the Word of God. On the cross, you remember that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they know not what they do. In other words, there was a possibility that those people could have forgiveness if they would repent and believe in Him because their sin was not this sin. So it's knowledgeable. Secondly, it's deliberate rejection. In other words, this kind of sin is not a spur-of-the-moment sin. The Pharisees had carefully deliberated and decided against this Messiah. And of course, this was not the first confrontation that Jesus had with them. Back in verse 14, in fact, we see that after a number of confrontations, finally they had conspired, they had sat down and conspired to kill him. So this was very, a, a very deliberative thing. Thirdly, this is a stated rejection. It's not only knowledgeable and deliberate, they verbalized their rejection of Jesus. I think that's why it's called blasphemy, which is something you do with your lips, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is probably also why verses 33 to verse 37 are included right here. They talk about how a person's true character comes out in what they say. And at the very end of it, look at the very end of our text that we read. Jesus said, by your words, you will be what? You will be condemned. Luke, in fact, connects this statement about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with 
Jesus' statement, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. In other words, we're thinking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about a stray doubt that a Christian has run across his mind. This is knowledgeable, deliberate, stated, and settled, determined rejection. There is such a thing, of course, as a temporary, fearful lack of faith, like Peter, who in the heat of the moment and the fearfulness of his heart swore with an oath that he didn't know Jesus of Nazareth. And then what happens? He goes out and he weeps bitterly for his sin. What have I done? Oh God. Right? There are times when believers fall into these even grave sins. This is, though, a settled rejection. There are sins we commit and doubts and fears we have, but we grieve with real repentance. But this is determined rejection, hardness of heart, apathy about sin, and a commitment in unbelief. It is what Hebrews 10, verse 29, that we read earlier, referred to as outraging the Holy Spirit. Now, there is such a thing as grieving the Holy Spirit, which I think falls short of this. There is perhaps even something that we might call quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit that that we might stay, say still perhaps falls short of this. This is outraging the Holy Spirit, trampling under feet the blood of Jesus Christ in direct, defiant, ongoing, persistent, determined, vocal opposition to Jesus or what Jesus says. It is described in other passages of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6, for example, in verse 4, this likewise talks about a sharing in the Holy Spirit and then definitively rejecting Him. And here's what it says. Listen very carefully to these words. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Right There's the knowledgeable part deliberate part. It is impossible in the case of one who has once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. He says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now those words have never ceased to 
cause a, what I hope is a holy fear in my heart. The writer of Hebrews goes on and gives this illustration. The land, the, the, the earth, that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful, it's cultivated and it receives a blessing from God. But then he says this, if the ground that gets rain often, lots of rain, if it grows up and bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And that illustration is supposed to make our minds go where they've probably gone. His end is to be burned. May it never be. This is the kind of thing that's described in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews gives an illustration of this sort of final hardened state. He says, let me tell you about Esau. Remember the story of Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal? First of all, think about that exchange, right? At the, in the moment, the meal seems so wonderful. But of course, with Esau, this was not merely a spur-of-the-moment decision. This was kind of a final demonstration of his ongoing rejection of God. And he says Esau sold his birthright. And you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. Literally, he found no place of repentance, though he sought it with tears. This is the kind of thing that is spelled out in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. Friends, please listen. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called the day, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is exactly what was happening to the Pharisees. They were hardened and deceived by the wickedness of sin you see the, their self-deception even in their accusations that are illogical and inconsistent. But they're so blinded by their determination to sin that now they're hard. And it is as if they couldn't come to Him if they wanted to. And this is what the Bible I think is warning against. This is what our Savior was warning His hearers against. He said, be careful. 
you might be getting, you, 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 you're close to this. Don't go that far. Don't blaspheme the very testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's the message of the Savior to you this morning. Listen to me. Don't blaspheme the testimony of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to your heart. If you hear the Savior speak, say yes. Don't close your heart off to Him. Listen, some of you have had the rain fall on your life again and again and again. You've drunk in that rain. A good person produces good fruit. That is fruit of response. Fruit of humility, repentance, and faith. But these men were hardened. So this sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, turns out not to be a single sin, but a habit and pattern of sin and unbelief that has become so ingrained that a person doesn't care anymore. He no longer has any desire to change. Verbally, he says, it's just the way I am. Or it's just what I believe. He's gotten past all that conviction and it no longer bothers him and God has left him alone. Now I want to say that maybe there is someone here today and you fear that you perhaps have committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I've talked with people who have wondered if they had committed a sin that was unpardonable. They've questioned whether they were elect or beyond salvation. I want to say to you two things. First, you know, in one sense, I really believe there is such a, health, such a thing as a healthy fear of the possibility of being so hardened in sin that I manifest that I have had a heart of unbelief all along and have been deceiving myself or deceiving others. There is a healthy fear of that. That's part of what God uses as a means to keep us in the faith. There are encouragements and then there are warnings. But I want to say secondly this, that there is a kind of preoccupation that even I think true Christians can sometimes have. A kind of overwhelming preoccupation over the possibility of committing such a sin that really keeps you from having any peace with God, which is what God intends for you to have. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you have not been able to have that peace. Or maybe you know someone who struggled and just struggled and struggled about this. And you know, I have to say this just on a pastoral level. 
that those kind of people who are most concerned about that are the ones that I generally have the least concern about. Because they care. They have a fear of God in their hearts. They are concerned for their soul. But if you're anxious over this possibility that you could become hardened, then I say, praise God that you're not there yet because you're anxious. You know, there's a, you've all heard of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan struggled with doubts, doubting his faith, struggled with temptations about sin. And at his lowest point, he actually thought to himself, well, if Christ will go from me, then just let him go. And he began to wonder if he was accursed beyond salvation. He began to wonder if he had committed an unpardonable sin and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And he actually agonized over this for a long, long, long time. And during this time of agony, he would move from from hope in the Scripture to desperation that it did not apply to him. And up and down and up and down he would go. And he thought about, he thought a lot about Esau. He wrote a lot about all of the ways he compared his life to Esau, who is held up as an example in Hebrews. He thought about his sin in comparison to those of David and Peter and Hezekiah and Solomon, all the time in comparing himself with these people, looking for some little shred of hope that there might be help for him. He read during this time about a man who had recanted his faith during the Protestant Reformation. And for a while, he even tried to convince himself that God wasn't real and that the final judgment would not come to adopt the arguments of the atheists and the ranters, he said, because he thought to himself, at least if it is real, if I can believe now that it's not real, then at least though I may be in torment forever, I may have peace right now. And he struggled and struggled with this idea and could never find peace for a long time. But then he writes, One day as I was walking to and fro in a good man's shop, bemoaning of myself in my sad and doleful state, afflicting myself with self-abhorrence for this wicked and ungodly thought, greatly fearing that I should not be pardoned, praying also in my heart that if this sin of mine did differ from that against the Holy Ghost, that the Lord would show it to me. And being now ready to sink in fear, he says, suddenly there was as if it had rushed in at the window the noise of the wind upon me, but very pleasant, and as if I heard a voice speaking, didst thou ever refuse to be justified by the blood of Christ? And with all 
He says, my whole profession, my whole life of profession past was in a moment open to me wherein I was made to see that designedly I had not. So my heart answered groaningly, no. And then there fell with power, he says, that word from God upon me. See, and this comes from Hebrews, see that you do not refuse him who speaketh. Hebrews 7.25. He said, this made a strange seizure upon my soul. It brought light to it and commanded a silence in my heart of all those tumultuous thoughts. It showed me also that Jesus Christ had yet a word of grace and mercy me. And what was that word of grace and mercy? See that you do not refuse him who, present tense, is speaking. And I think the hope for Bunyan is the hope for you. Hebrews puts it this way, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Where does he get that? Why is he highlighting the word today? Because he says, it is said in the scripture, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So I want to tell you this. Today, right now, are you willing to submit to Jesus Christ? Do you right now believe in the Lord Jesus, then I tell you that there's hope for you for today. Don't worry about the sins of yesterday. Don't fear for what may be the sins of tomorrow. Right now, I think this is right. Right now, today, God calls on you to hear His voice. If you hear His Word right now, if it's coming to you, if you sit here in this service and you're hearing the Word of God and you're saying, Amen, 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 listen to His voice Hear it and submit to it. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, as long as you are willing to hear Christ and submit your heart to Him, there is hope. There is hope. But let none of us harden our hearts and so blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Father, please help us and keep us from this grave sin. We are so thankful that when we are truly bought by You and brought into Your presence by the the Lord Jesus, that we are given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, never to leave us. And so we have hope that all whom you have called, you will glorify. But Lord, we are aware that it is possible to deceive ourselves. And so we take this warning and receive it. Lord, you know 
again, I ask you to, to use this text for your purposes in this congregation. And for those who need it, Lord, encourage them. And for those who need it, Lord, let this warning just weigh heavy on their hearts and be for them even yet a means of grace. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you take a moment, consider the text, pray this in your heart to the Lord, respond to Him right now. Say, Lord, I look back on all of the things I've done in the past and all of the sins I've committed with shame and regret, but I want to tell you right now, I hear your voice and I, I just want to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Just tell him that. If that's in your heart, you tell him that right now. Take a moment while the pianist plays.